If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 139. We'll be reading verses 7 through 12 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, in the pew in front of you, there'll be one just exactly like this. Please feel free to use it. And the scripture we're reading today is on page 521. Page 521. So we'll give you just a moment to turn there. And we will be reading verses 7 through 12 this morning. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day. For the darkness is as light with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your omniscience. We thank you that you are ever-present. We thank you that your sovereignty covers every square inch of our lives. Father, as we've sung this morning, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. It is our only hope when we stand before you. Father, as your word goes out this morning, we pray for attentive hearts. We pray that you would be with Toby as he shares your holy word and challenges us from scripture this morning. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. After several internships in youth ministry, my first actual position on a staff was at the First Baptist Church of Prospect, uh, just outside Louisville, Kentucky. There I was uh, leading the youth ministry and leading music, and um, uh, they, had a, they had a keyboard in the and in the service, every, literally every Sunday, every Sunday, it was programmed so at the end of the service, someone would walk over, a lady would walk over and push the button, that, and it would play, and they would sing, Shine, Jesus, Shine, literally every Sunday. And so after three Sundays, I said, you know, we could sing something else at the end of the service. And they said, we can. <laughs> Yes, and we don't even have to program the keyboard to do it. Well, in doing the youth ministry at this church, uh, there were, we would meet every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. There were about 14 kids in this group. And you can always know, at least for a while, there was a while in the culture of the church that you could tell which room was for the student ministry because if everybody took their old couches there, uh, that would be the room that uh, the youth gathered in, and such was the case at First Baptist Prospect. Uh, the, the, the room was lined with couches. Every once in a while, somebody would be uh, getting rid of a slightly better couch than the worst one that was in there, and so that one would be replaced. Uh, so we would meet on Sunday and Wednesday nights, 
And uh, as I got to know these students, I kept hearing them talk about this music group that they liked, this band, and I had never heard of them before. So one Sunday I thought, well, I'll just, I'll learn something about this band, and I will. So I went to the mall, uh, and I bought a CD, and I took it to my office, and, uh, you know, I wasn't all that thrilled about the cover of the CD, but I was giving the benefit of the doubt, and I took it to my office, and I played it, and I decided I was going to listen to it from beginning to end. I listened to this CD from beginning to end, and I want to tell you that it was so awful, so vulgar, so nasty, so wicked. It was something where I felt I needed to power wash my ears after listening to something like this. And I got done. I was, I was really upset by the end of listening to this album, and I was uh, ramped up by zeal. And looking back decades later, I was ramped up by a bit of youthful foolishness as well. So I decided I was going to confront these kids about this band in a way that they would never forget. So that night, Sunday night, we gather, and they, we played a game, and then they plopped down on the couches, and the dust from the couches went up. And then instead of saying, open your Bibles too, I hit play on the CD player. I had chosen the least offensive song, which was really quite something you had to work at in this, on this album. And I played it, and I didn't stop playing it. I let it run from beginning to end. Jordan never do that. But I let it play. I let it play from beginning to end. And as, as soon as the first note came out, facial expressions changed. And it, their faces got worse as the song went on. And I got done with and the song ended mercifully, and I stopped the CD. And the first thing that was said was by a young man who said this. You can't play that in church. Well, as we talked that night, their view of God became clear. God's obviously at the church. He's got a cot probably up in the baptistry that he sleeps on. He roams the hall like an elementary school hall monitor making sure everything's all right. He's obviously there for the Sunday services and for the Wednesday night Bible study. Occasionally, he'll venture out to a prayer meeting in a home or maybe to a camp with the, with the teenagers or to a mission trip or something like that. But pretty well, God stays close to home in the church. And God doesn't want to hear that in His church. Now, we may shake our heads at such thinking because we all know that God doesn't live at the church. And yet, isn't it true that there is very often a disconnect between the person that one is in a gathering like this on Sundays, at God's place, if you will, and the person that one is the rest of the week? In the words that are spoken, in the attitudes that are employed, in the actions that are lived out. Coming to the church is like going to your grandmother's house. 
You're very careful about everything. You're very careful about what you say. You're very careful about how you do everything that you do. And then you go back to your place where you can finally be yourself and just do what you'd never want Grandma to see. Say what you'd never want Grandma to hear. Now, one of the reasons that this disconnect exists is because many people come to a gathering like this and they want to make sure that everybody else knows I'm a good Christian. I don't want to be thought of any other way. And so the fear of man drives us to behave in certain ways. But the other thing is that there is a disconnect because there's a notion that we're coming to God's, and we use this language and not, not really is is wrong but it's not wrong to we talk about coming to God's house right the Lord's house I mean many pastors will stand up I have a friend up in Fort Wayne he seems to begin every sermon with it's good to be in the Lord's house today and we think that we've come to a place to visit and then we go back to our place where I can just be me you see the kids who think that you can't listen to that kind of music at church And the men and women who just go through the motions at church like they're just paying a visit, both disregard the same attribute of God. The attribute found in verses 7 to 12 in Psalm 139, that our God is omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere. Everywhere. Now, that is really difficult for us to understand. I mean, we talk about the frustration of wanting to be in two places at once. We can't even get to two places at once. Sometimes we're not even fully in one place at once. There's actually a place uh, in Bristol, Tennessee, in the far northeastern part of the state. Uh, And in Bristol, Tennessee, there is what is called State Street. And in the middle of State Street is that plaque. And on one side of the street, you're in Tennessee. And on the other side of the street, you're in Virginia. And if you straddle it, you can literally say, I am in Virginia and I am in Tennessee. But in reality, only part of you is in Virginia, right? And only part of you is in Tennessee. This is not what we mean by God is omnipresent, that somehow He's just so big that part of Him spreads to various places. What we mean by God is omnipresent, that God is fully present everywhere. Everywhere. John Frame puts it like this, God is not a corporeal being. He's not flesh and blood like we are. So, omnipresence cannot mean that God is a physical substance spread through the material universe. What it means, rather, is that God's power, knowledge, and ability to act in the finite world are universal. God's power and knowledge and ability to act are everywhere. If you think of it in terms of when we talked about sovereignty, remember we talked about sovereignty, God is absolutely in con- God is absolutely powerful and absolutely in control of absolutely everything. And when you add this, because he's absolutely everywhere. There's not just a piece of God here with us and a piece over in South Africa with the Shingletons 
and a piece in Chile with the Sharps, and a piece in another part of Africa with the S family, and another piece in Ukraine with the Zerbergs, and a piece with other brothers and sisters who are gathering right now around the city to worship. God is fully present everywhere. Now, if you sit and think about this, there are plenty of questions that will immediately spring to mind, right? Just practicalities. Like, if God is omnipresent, why do we pray, Lord, be with so-and-so? Why do we pray that way if God is omnipresent? Why does the Bible say something like Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on Him? Why would the Bible employ that kind of language? Why would we talk about wanting God to show up in our services? I mean, there's, a, there's an old chorus I couldn't get out of my head this week. Holy Spirit, Thou art welcome in this place. As if we need to open the doors and invite God into our services because He's obviously on the outside waiting to come in. What does it mean when the Bible speaks about being separated from God then? These are all good questions. Questions, some of them, I'm going to spend a little bit of time tonight at our prayer meeting talking about them. If we spent too much time there, we'd never get to the actual text, and that's our goal, is to get to the text and see what it says. And so we want to come here to Psalm 139. In the first six verses, if you remember last week, or if you even let your eye go up, You'll see verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Those first six verses are about God's omniscience, that He knows all things. Specifically, David says that God knows me fully. He knows my outer life. He knows my inner life. He knows my way of life. And now David moves from God's omniscience to His omnipresence. Now, in some ways, his omniscience is a function of his omnipresence. God doesn't just get like a printout report like the AP News poll, right, that just, you know, that just prints out at his fax machine and he sees what's going on. God knows all things because he is absolutely everywhere and he sees everything with perfect clarity. Beginning to end. And so last week we talked about how the fact that God's omniscience can bring comfort and so can God's omnipresence. I mean, it's comforting, isn't it, for, God, for, for us to know that God knows when I am being tempted. But how sweet it is to know that God is with me when I'm being tempted. And He has promised that no temptation will overcome me. He gives strength to resist. He gives the way of escape. God knows that I'm opposed in the faith at school or at work or in my neighborhood. But how much sweeter to know that not just God knows, but God is with me, empowering me, strengthening me, giving me courage to stay faithful. God knows I am suffering. But how much, how sweet it is to know he is with me when I'm suffering. He's not on vacation. He's working all things together for His glory and for my good. He's in the valley of the shadow of death with me. So that's why I don't have to fear. 
God knows that I serve Him. God knows that I'm sharing the gospel. But how great it is to know that He is with me. When Jesus ascended into heaven, what did He tell the disciples? Go, make disciples of all nations. Behold, I am with you now until the age to come. God's omnipresence can be quite a comfort. And we could talk the whole time about that comfort. But I want to talk about it in the context of what David is saying. Because as you'll remember, last week, even though God's omniscience is comforting, that wasn't the point of verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6, God's omniscience actually brought conviction into David's soul. God, God's hand is on him. And actually, likewise, when we get to the omnipresence of God... What that means is that the conviction that is clearly on David, there's no escaping it. What we learn from these six verses is this. No one can get away from God. No one can get away from God. That's a comforting thought when we're suffering, isn't it? But it's a convicting thought when we sin. Let's look at it together. First, David asks a rhetorical You see these rhetorical questions with no answer. Rhetorical questions with no answer. Now, rhetorical questions essentially mean it's a question with an assumed answer. But there's no answer that can satisfactorily really answer this question. He asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If you look back at verse 5, you'll see the predicaments David's in and where this set of questions comes from. He says in verse 5, Lord, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. God has him hemmed in like a city surrounded. And that sense of being surrounded often raises up in us the question, how do I get out of here? People deal with a convicted conscience in a number of ways. They will run from it in all manner of methods. They will seek to dull their senses by one means or another in order to get away from a guilty conscience. They will let their minds escape into the dullness of entertainment in order to escape a guilty conscience. They will seek to make up for whatever it is they did wrong, thinking if they could just do better tomorrow than today, then the guilt will just go away trying to escape a guilty conscience. Well, my mom's been asking me to go to church for years. I'll go this week. I'll go this week, trying to relieve a guilty conscience. People try to answer this question all, uh, in any manner of ways. How do I get out of here? I mean, picture, if you will, the last play of a football game, right? The losing team, they're down by five, receives the kickoff and starts to run. And what do they do? As When they're hemmed in by the defenders, pitch the ball, pitch the ball, pitch the ball. we got to get away from these defenders. And they're hemmed in, they're hemmed in, they're hemmed in. Or maybe you've just been somewhere that you perceived was a dangerous place. And you're automatically thinking, where are the exits? How would I get out of here? What good is my yellow belt in Taekwondo at this point? Well, that's just me. I don't know if yellow belts in Taekwondo expire, but I used to have one, which I know intimidates many people. But don't be intimidated. It just means I lasted about four weeks in the class. Um, 
but we perceive things that are dangerous. We perceive being surrounded. We perceive coming in, and we think, how do I get out of here? You do it in traffic, don't you? When you're on your road trip, you're like, where is the app that's going to show me the alternate route? I have to get out of here. And people try to escape a guilty conscience any number of ways because a guilty conscience does that. It presses in. It doesn't want us to escape except for the way of escape. Through repentance. But David asked the question. And he's asking the question because God's double-edged sword, which has been sharpened by God's Spirit, is aimed at his heart to bring conviction. And David's saying, how do I get out of here? Where shall I flee from your presence? Isn't that interesting? David's not even talking to himself. He's talking to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, how do I get away from you? Literally, the presence there is being face-to-face. So, Lord, how can I get out of your face? How can I get away from your face? You've been there, haven't you? You've been guilty, and the person who knows you're guilty, you see their face. I mean, this happened in the life of the Lord Jesus, didn't it? He had told Peter he will deny him three times in Luke's account. Peter denies him three times. The rooster crows, and the Lord looks at him, and Peter is crushed. And David's saying, is there somewhere I can go where you'll stop looking at me that way, Lord? Is there somewhere I can go? That's been man's instinct from the beginning, hasn't it? When we fell in the garden, what did did Adam and Eve do? They played hide and go seek. They went to hide. If children are particularly awful while mom and dad are out, and then they hear the garage door go up, It's not unusual for such children to run to a closet in the hopes that mom and dad will not find them. But with God, there is no closet to run to. There is no closet to hide in because God is omnipresent. In 1 Kings 20, there's a a story of Ahab leading Israel to defeat the Syrian army. And the servants of the Syrian king come to him basically to give him counsel on how they could do better in the next battle. And they say in verse 23, well, their gods are gods of the hills, so they are stronger than we. But let us fight them again in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. This was, this was common thinking in the ancient Near East, the idea that gods had particular regions that they ruled over, but once you got outside their region, they had less power there. Uh, but what the Syrians failed to understand is this very truth that we're looking at, that God is everywhere. And not just God is everywhere, God is Lord everywhere. God is powerful everywhere. So when the battle uh, ramped back up in the next spring, things did not go well for the Syrians. The, the, the Israelites killed 100,000 of their men in one day. The rest start to run. They flee to a city called Aphek, and the city wall falls on 27,000 more of them and kills them. And the Lord says why He did it. He says, because they say their gods are the gods of the hills and not the plain. The Lord is omnipresent. There's nowhere that God isn't. 
in Jeremiah, God asks His people this question, Am I not a God at hand, declares the Lord, and a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Friends, we can, we, we can hide from our friends. We can hide from our colleagues. We can hide from fellow church members. We can hide from our pastor and our elders. We can hide from our wives and our children. But we cannot hide from God. To think that we can escape God is like a fish thinking it's escaped being caught while the hook is in its mouth and the net is around it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Nowhere. And so David begins to tease this out in verses 8 to 12. He talks about escape routes with no escape. So we have rhetorical questions with no answer, and now escape routes with no escape. I did an escape room once. It was on a birthday for one of our sons. Uh, and we were trucking along quite well. I was feeling quite good about myself. And then there was one clue that we simply couldn't find. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. It was just the one thing. And when the guy came in and showed us where it was, we all th thought, well, that's ridiculous. We should have looked there, you know. I mean, this is how it was. But there was no escape for us. We just couldn't get out, which is really awful. They take your picture saying we didn't escape. I mean, it's humiliating. Made me want to go back and do it again. I'll show them. I'll look in that place this time. Uh, but uh, we didn't. Because I'm just a proud man who needed to be humiliated. Anyway, so we have these escape routes that come out in verses 8 to 12. But we see, first of all, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to run. Look at verses 8 to 10. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. There's nowhere to run. These things give us great distance. He says, I, if I go to the heavens, you're there. Well, of course, Isaiah 66, 1 says, Heaven is my throne. That's the Lord speaking. But then he says, I can't even get away from you in Sheol, in the place of the dead, even though it's considered a place that's cut off from God. In Psalm 88, we see that kind of language. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. But even there in this place of death, God is present. Friends, there is a great misunderstanding about those who die apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That somehow going to hell will mean eternal separation from God, period. But that is not the case. It will be eternal separation from His grace, from His mercy, from His love, and an eternity spent in the presence of His justice and His wrath. Even if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. So he's talked about going up. 
He's talked about going down, but that's not all. He says in verse 9, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. The wings of the morning take us to the east. Now, I had to think about that. I thought, when I'm standing in the pulpit, which way will be east so that I can point in that direction? It's that way. But when he says, if I take the wings of the morning, he says, if I go as far to the east as I can possibly go and I fly there, and if I, take, if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, and when you're in Israel and you're looking on a map and you look at Israel and you say, where is the uttermost parts of the sea? It is west. It's as far west as you can look. Even there, he'll not escape the hand of God. The hand that's on him in verse 5 is still on him, holding and leading. There's no shaking loose. When we were at uh, Caleb's graduation, it was down at the convention center, and there are, were literally thousands of people in, this, in the corridor of the convention hall. And uh, it is really hard to walk through a crowd like that and stay together as a family. Well, our youngest wanted to ride the escalator that's there up and down, and we said he could. Uh, and so he and I and another child are, are walking toward the escalator, uh, but I put my hand on his head. My eyes are up at the crowd surveying which way to, best way to get to, you know, there's a break in that family's line. Go for it. You know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that we're doing, weaving our way through the crowd. But I have my hand on his head because he has a tendency when he gets an idea to just go for it. And so anytime we, he would start to veer off course, I would just slightly tighten my grip so he knows you're not going anywhere. <laughs> You're not going anywhere, I'm not going. You're not going anywhere. You're with me, and I'm with you. And that's essentially what David says. If I go up, if I go down, if I go left, if I go right, I never escape your hand. It's always there. Did you know that no matter how much you try to escape a guilty conscience, so long as you do it in the wrong way, it will always creep back? Always. In the recesses of the night, in the quiet of your drive to work, why? Because you haven't actually escaped. God's hand is still on you. There is nowhere to run. Also, there's nowhere to hide. Well, if all these directions in verses 8 to 10 don't give me any relief, then maybe I can just simply hide. And what better place to hide than the dark? So David says in verse 11, I know what I'll do. Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night. Now, the reality is, is people do all manner of things in the dark that they would never do in the light. Uh, groups of teenage friends seem to get sillier and sometimes dumber, and sometimes what seems to be more valiant as the night goes on, right? Stunts and pranks that they would never do at 2 p.m. somehow seem like a brilliant idea at 2 a.m. Don't ask me how I know. I just know. 
But more seriously, there are statistics that, that demonstrate that crimes such as robbery, such as assaults, sexual crimes, rape, violent crime in general, alcohol-impaired driving and fatalities go up at night, not just after work, but in the pitch black of night, like between midnight and 3 a.m. night. The cover of darkness somehow gives us a sense of hiding, that what we do won't be seen or known or found because it's done in the dark. And the truth is, the cover of darkness can keep me from the watching eyes of my parents. The cover of darkness can keep me from the watching eyes of police. But it will not keep me from being seen by God. Verse 12, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Have you ever thought about the foolishness of thinking that God can't see you in the dark? Have you ever thought about these verses and thought that? And then all you have to do is turn your Bible backward all the way to the beginning, right? And you see, God said, let there be light. But friends, he didn't say it because he was having trouble seeing anything. God's perception is as accurate as pervasive, as perceptive, as piercing in the dark as it is in the light. Jesus said, what was done in the dark will be brought into the light. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. God is omnipresent. When you leave here today, you will not be leaving God's presence. You will not be leaving God's presence. He is everywhere. So David asks rhetorical questions that have no answer, and he looks for escape routes that provide no escape which leaves us with this irrefutable truth. No one can get away from God. No one can. God is omnipresent. Uh, last week we talked a bit about this notion of secret sin. The idea of sin that we have successfully hidden from everyone around us. And, we've and we concluded last week that though it's hidden from people, it's not hidden from God. That God knows the sin that nobody else knows. That what we think of as a secret, He knows openly. He knows fully. If you think that is convicting, now let's step into the realm of the omnipresence of God. Yeah? If we think it's simply convicting that God knows our sin fully, consider this. He was with you when you did it. You didn't step outside His presence. When you did whatever it is, you didn't step out his, outside of His presence when you shoplifted at the mall. 
You're out of video camera range, but you weren't out of His presence. You weren't out of His presence when you were stealing time from work to be on social media when you should be working. You didn't step outside His presence when as a married person you started giving your heart to somebody that's not your spouse. You didn't step outside His presence when you made those malicious and awful comments about other human beings made in the image of God. God is not deaf to it. God was right there with you. You didn't step outside His presence when you locked yourself in a room with the lights off to look at whatever it is on the internet or on your phone that you looked at. He was with you. You didn't step outside His presence when you had that conversation with that person where you gave them a piece of your mind. He was with you. You simply can't step outside His presence. And He is the same God everywhere that He is present. Now that's true for everybody. But it is particularly heinous for the Christian who knows not only is God present everywhere, God indwells me with His Holy Spirit. That when I deliberately choose unholiness, it is with the very presence of the Holy Spirit residing within me. Stephen Charnock wrote this, How terrible should the thoughts of God's omnipresence be to sinners? How foolish it is to imagine any hiding place from the incomprehensible God who fills and contains th all things and is present in every point of the world. When men have shut the door and made all darkness within, they cannot be sheltered from the presence of God. If they could separate themselves from their own shadows they could not avoid His company or be obscured from His sight. Hypocrites cannot disguise their sentiments from Him. He is in the most secret nook of their hearts. No thought is hidden, no lust is secret, but the eye of God beholds this and that and the other. He is present with our, with our heart when we imagine, with our hands when we act. We may exclude the sun from peeping into our solitudes, but not the eyes of God from beholding our actions. He is in the greatest darkness as well as the clearest light. Nothing can be hid from Him. No, not in the darkest cells or the thickest walls. It's overwhelming to consider, isn't it? Don't you feel overwhelmed considering the omnipresence of God in light of even choices you may have made this week. God doesn't simply know it. He was there. Here's the thing. On the day of judgment, God will need no witnesses. No witnesses will need to be brought forth to recall all the things that we have done. He will not need to read a report, for He Himself was there when all of it took place. The righteous judge of the earth knows all that must be judged because he was there when it happened.
It's overwhelming. It, is, it should be like God's hand coming down and pressing on us. But there is good news. While it is true that you and I cannot run to the heights or the depth or the east or the west to escape God's conviction, it is also true that we cannot run so high or so low, oh so far to the east or so far to the west, that we can outrun His salvation. Isaiah 59 tells us, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would understand the breadth and the width and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Friend, you may flee to the heights, but Christ's love will ascend there to rescue you. You may descend to the depths, but Christ's love will dig you out of the grave that your sins have you buried in. You may run to the east, but Christ, the good shepherd, will leave the 99 and He will come after the one and He will take you up in His arms and He will set His love on you and He will bring you home. And you may run to the uttermost parts of the sea, but Christ's love will be like a buoy that is thrown over you to rescue you and hold you up and keep you from drowning. And you may be in the darkest pit of sin you could imagine, but the love of Christ can bring you into His glorious light. His love took Him to the cross to bear your sin and your guilt, to face God's wrath for you. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Him, if you'll stop running, stop asking, where can I go to get away from you, God? If you'll stop running to self-made hiding places, the hiding place of escaping into this or of this or of that, whether good or evil. Stop running. Stop trying to find a hiding place. And if you'll come out of that, Christ will save you. Look, the reality, friends, is you cannot run from God. You cannot hide yourself from His wrath. But if you will run to Jesus, the Bible says you will be hidden in Him. <laughs> and the wrath of God will never find you. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? I should stop trying and just run to you in repentance and faith. So, dear friend, wherever it is that you are this morning, whether you're in sin or in suffering, in defeat, 
or in victory, in unbelief, or walking by faith, the fact remains. You cannot get away from God. And this morning, that is either comforting or it's convicting. If it's comforting, rest in it. Praise the Lord for it. Make list upon list of the ways you're thankful that you can't get away from Him. And if it's convicting, repent. Turn to Him or turn back to Him. And enjoy the sweetness of His presence. Because those who come to Him in faith, He will never turn out. No one can get away from God. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You very keenly aware that You have been with us this whole time that we can never walk outside Your presence. That when we feel the most alone, we are not, for You are there. When we think we are getting away with something, we are not, for You are there. If we are suffering, You are there. If we are sinning, You are there. If we are persecuted, You are there. If we are crushed by the pains of life, you are there. If we are crushing others in our sin, you are there. Lord, I pray that you will search our hearts and that you will know us, that you will shine your light in our hearts to seek out and to search where is it that we are today? How is it that we ought to be thinking about your omnipresence? I pray for those who are suffering because of the sin of others against them, because of disease riddling their bodies, because of financial turmoil, I pray that the fact that you are with them, that they cannot get away from God, that they have not wandered away from you, that you have not turned a blind eye, that that will give sweet, lasting comfort to their souls. And for those who are in sin, for those who keep pretending to be Christians but are not, for those who think they're getting away with it because so-and-so doesn't know. Lord, I pray the reality of Your presence will bring deep conviction and by the power and grace of Your Spirit You will bring them to repentance. Save the lost. Strengthen your church. 
Glorify your Son, Jesus, among us. We ask it all in the name of the one who is present with us always to the end of the age, Jesus Christ. Amen.